Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Notre Dame International Security Center's Students Talk Security podcast. My name is Martin Haley, and I am a senior and an undergraduate fellow at NDISC. And my guest today is Lieutenant General Eric Vick of the United States Air Force. Today, we'll be talking about the F-35 Lightning II program. General Fick is an aerospace engineer, a pilot, a logistics plans and a programs officer who has led the Air Force Senate Liaison Office, served on the Air Staff as a branch chief, and served three times as an Air Force Program Executive Officer, or PEO, including in his current role leading the F-35 Lightning II Joint Program Office. He holds a bachelor's in aerospace engineering from the University of Notre Dame, as well as three master's degrees in aeronautical engineering, military operational art and science, and national resource strategy. Lieutenant General Fick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Martin. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to speak to you and to speak to the broader Notre Dame community. I, I, I do want to correct one brief misstatement in your introduction. I, I am not a pilot. Uh, I am a graduate of the Air Force Test Pilot School, uh, but I graduated that curriculum as what they call a flight test engineer. So uh, many many people get that uh, uh, get that wrong, make that uh, make that mistake, but don't worry about it. Um, it's a little bit deceiving uh, when you uh, when you see the title of the school. Absolutely, my apologies for that. Not a problem. So I'll take you back right now to the summer of 2008. As a kid, I got the chance to visit the Naval Air Museum at Pax River. And, you know, as a nine-year-old, all I cared about was the cool factor of the two jets there, you know, the shapes, the speed, the stealth. And I really had no appreciation for the hard work and decisions that went into developing and producing the Joint Strike Fighter. Perhaps to start, can you give our listeners a brief description of this unique program and your role in it? Sure, I, um, I'm, I'm happy to do so. Um, the, the F-35 uh, Lightning II program is, is one of amazing uh, uh, breadth and complexity. Um, it's a single program uh, that, that is uh, responsible to develop, uh, deliver, and sustain uh, three different variants uh, of, a, of a common platform. Those are the F-35A, which is the conventional takeoff and landing version uh, of the aircraft, the F-35B, which we call the, the Stovall or short takeoff and vertical landing variant, and the F-35C, uh, which is the carrier variant. Uh, the F-35A, uh, operated by uh, the U.S. Air Force and most of our international uh, partners and uh, foreign military sales customers. Uh, the F-35B, operated uh, uh, by the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, by the uh, United Kingdom, uh, by Italy. Uh, and the F-35C at the at present time uh, only operated by the U.S. Navy. So um, three U.S. services, um, each of whom uh, operates one or in some cases more uh, of those three variants of the program. So in addition to those three services all being foundational uh, to the development, uh, delivery and sustainment uh, of, of the uh, F-35 air vehicles and air systems, we also have seven international partners uh, who are part and parcel of the program. And those partners include uh, the United Kingdom, Australia, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, Denmark, and Canada. And those partners are, are, are part of a F-35 enterprise that, that really, uh, in my mind, gives it uh, the unique flavor um, of, the, uh, of the F-35 program. We can talk more about that in, in just a moment. Uh, but then in addition to these uh, international partners, 
We also have more traditional foreign military sales customers uh, to include Israel, Japan, South Korea, Denmark, Singapore, and Poland. So those have a more traditional relationship uh, with, uh, with the program office uh, like, like you would for, for many, many other uh, legacy programs uh, where de defense uh, assistance is, uh, is given. So, so let's talk about where the program is uh, right now. Uh, we are currently finishing up what we call the systems development and demonstration phase. And the, uh, I'm gonna characterize that the sole remaining open element of that phase of the acquisition life cycle is the completion of what we call initial operational testing evaluation. So we're working very, very closely with the US Air Force and with the US Navy operational test communities uh, to, uh, to finish the execution of that uh, initial operational testing evaluation. Once we get that test behind us, uh, we will be able to move forward to our next critical program milestone, which will be referred to as milestone C. Uh, and at the same time, we have what we call a full rate production decision milestone. And so uh, that, those are really the next big acquisition milestones that we're going to move to. Uh, but to get to them, we have to finish initial operational testing evaluation. Um, at the same time, uh, despite the fact that we uh, remain in uh, initial operational testing evaluation, we are working to actively transform um, our developmental paradigm into one that leverages um, Agile and DevSecOps, uh, both, both of which I'm, I'm certain you heard. Uh, but, but the principles that underlie uh, Agile and DevSecOps, I think broadly have yet to truly be um, uh, enabled in a defense system at scale. Uh, and we're using uh, those principles uh, to, to allow us to incrementally deliver substantial upgrades to this baseline program uh, to, to, give us, um, uh, to give us the ability to stay up to speed with the, the uh, threat. Uh, we're going to be delivering a new set of capabilities um, on, on a regular cadence over the course of the next five to seven years, as opposed to uh, doing all of the development first and then coming through at the very end uh, and, and fielding them in kind of a more big bang approach, a more traditional approach. So, so we are actually uh, you know, leaning fairly forward into this new uh, methodology. We've actually already delivered uh, numerous key capabilities uh, in this way uh, to include uh, automatic, uh, what we call the automatic ground collision avoidance system or auto GCAS. Uh, and if you're watching, uh, you'll see that uh, the F-35's implementation of automatic ground collision avoidance uh, actually won it the 2018 Collier Trophy. Uh, so a pretty substantial accomplishment and a, and a life-saving accomplishment uh, on the program. From a production perspective, uh, we are uh, um, most of the way through our 12th production lot, uh, and we are currently delivering aircraft uh, from three final assembly and checkout facilities. Uh, the primary one is in Fort Worth, Texas, but we also operate one in Nagoya, Japan, and in Cameron, Italy. Uh, from a sustainment perspective, we continue to work to bring our uh, global sustainment solution uh, to life. Really, the centerpiece of the, G of the global sustainment solution is a global spares pool. Uh, but in addition to that spares pool that's shared across all of our partners and, and customers, uh, we also are working to establish regional warehousing facilities and regional airframe engine and component uh, maintenance, overhaul, repair, and upgrade facilities around the world so that each of our partner uh, nations, uh, as well as our deployed U.S. forces, 
uh, don't have to wait for parts to ship all the way from the U.S. Uh, when they're required to be uh, uh, shipped overseas. So truly, uh, a global network uh, from a sustainment perspective working to keep uh, the entirety of the fleet uh, airborne. Um, what does that fleet look like today? Uh, currently, uh, we're at about 585 aircraft. Uh, we're operational at 21 bases in five uh, different maritime locations uh, around the world. Uh, we have accumulated uh, about 335,000 flight hours um, over the course of the last, I'm going to say over the course of the last 20 years. Uh, we've trained 1,190 pilots. Uh, we've trained 9,750 maintainers. Uh, and we continue to march the program forward uh, despite uh, COVID and despite the challenges that it brings to us uh, on, on a daily and yearly basis. Hopefully that helped. Absolutely. That was in a great summary of everything that it is and hopes to be. I'd like to talk about the part that you discussed somewhat near the beginning of that, which was the role allied partners play. So in terms of international security cooperation, what was the intended role for allied partners to play in the design, development, process, and production of the Lightning II? And how has that cooperation played out? Yeah, so uh, so excellent question. Uh, you know, when I, when I think broadly about uh, the notion of, uh, of international partnerships uh, and, and bringing uh, uh, international partners to bear in a defense program, Really, there's a number of a number of reasons that we do that. One of them uh, is to increase uh, our ability to interoperate with those partners, our ability to uh, to, to fight with them in a coalition. Uh, one would be uh, to to increase uh, the affordability of the program. Right. If uh, if we are sharing the cost to develop that program and sharing the cost to sustain that program. Uh, those are costs that our, our U.S. services uh, don't necessarily have to bear, uh, which is a, a huge boon for them. And ultimately, uh, it, it's to improve uh, the, the lethality uh, of both the U.S. forces, but uh, of our allies as well. You know, at the end of the day, as we take these systems into battle around the world, um, we increasingly, I won't say exclusively, but we increasingly fight in a coalition uh, kind of context. And what better way to ensure that that coalition, coalition can fight well together uh, than to making sure, sure that they bring the same tools uh, in, into that uh, battle space. Thank you. Um, I, I'd like to talk actually exactly about that type of fighting. So fifth generation aircraft for our listeners who are less aware um, are characterized among other, by among other aspects, the ability to network with other systems and weapons platforms. So what are the benefits of um, developing, producing, and then selling fifth generation aircraft to our allies when we're fighting these more coalition context battles? Yeah, great question. Um, so when I think about fifth gen uh, strike fighter technology, I think of three uh, fundamental characteristics. Uh, the first of these characteristics um, is stealth or low observable uh, features. Uh, the, the benefit of stealth uh, is it allows you uh, to, to penetrate uh, and an enemy's air defense system. It allows you to persist uh, within that uh, uh, contested uh, airspace, uh, and, it, and it permits you to, to employ your weaponry uh, at the time and place of your choosing. Uh, conventional aircraft, uh, uh, fourth gen and, and older aircraft uh, that, that lack these uh, stealth characteristics, uh, candidly aren't able to do that. Uh, so, so this brings us 
uh, this brings us access to the battle space uh, that that's not possible uh, with uh, with other systems. The second most important piece uh, that uh, fifth gen technology brings um, is what we call sensor fusion. So in a uh, in a legacy fighter, uh, the air crew has available to him or her many many different sensors from their eyeballs uh, to the radios to tactical data links. Uh, to the radars uh, that they may have on board, to the electro-optic uh, targeting systems that they may have on board. And the air crew uh, then must take all of that information, uh, ingested from all of those uh, widely varied sensors, uh, and then fuse that information together uh, in his or her brain uh, to develop a sense for uh, what the air picture looks like outside, what the threat environment looks like. Uh, they don't have, they, uh, they have to look at, uh, at that uh, perhaps uh, something that the radar comes up with uh, that's you know, 120 miles uh, in front of them, off to the right and, and a little bit elevated. Uh, and they look at that with three or four different sensors and eventually figure out what that is and whether they need to protect it or whether they need to kill it. Uh, in the F-35 uh, with sensor fusion, all of the sensors on board the aircraft uh, from the electro-optic targeting system uh, on board to the radar, to the electronic warfare, uh, systems uh, to the uh, tactical uh, uh, data links. Uh, all of that information is brought on board. Uh, and what is presented to the air crew is there's a bad guy out there at 120 miles, go get him. Or there's a good guy out there at 120 miles, leave him alone or protect him. Uh, it takes the, 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 the fusion piece, the hard uh, thought piece um, that, that we've uh, for many, many years required our, our air crew uh, to execute and automated that. So all they have to think about is managing the battle, uh, not necessarily how to interpret different inputs from different sensors. Uh, so those are the first two major uh, uh, benefits uh, of a fifth generation uh, fighter platform. Uh, the third, and the one you actually asked about, uh, was interoperability, right? And that's the ability um, to, to make, uh, in my mind, I'll say it this way, uh, to make everyone in the fight better. Uh, what we found uh, is that the F-35, with that uh, amazing uh, uh, ability to generate that uh, that site picture uh, by by pushing that picture to those less advantaged users, uh, they are able to give that insight uh, and and that and that visibility uh, into the into the global picture uh, to those who can't generate it on their own. So we've we've seen it many many times uh, in uh, in exercises. Uh, I, I can't talk about real-world combat operations because I've not been involved in any, uh, but but I can tell you that the feedback I get uh, from uh, from the exercises uh, has been that even brand new F-35 pilots uh, have have gone on record uh, as as saving entire strike packages uh, by recognizing things that no one else saw uh, through their sensors, but the F-35 was able to see because of the way uh, that uh, that site picture was fused together. So if you think about that now in a, in a coalition warfare sense, um, giving our international partners the ability to see the battle space just as we see uh, the battle space, giving them the ability to understand uh, the complexity of that very dynamic um, uh, warfighting uh, uh, environment, uh, I, I think is fundamental to our ability to fight together with them as we move off into the future. And the F-35, I, I believe, uh, is uniquely postured to allow us to do that. I mean, that's an incredible capability, and um, I think that's that's very important. So, 
talking, you talked earlier about now we're beginning to move into the field operationally with Lightning Twos. So mm-hmm. the next aspect of coordinated efforts will be shared part system. So can you talk about how that will be rolled out and what the, the challenges are facing for cooperation in that regard in the future? Sure. So, so uh, I guess the first thing I'd say is it's, uh, it's really not a matter of rollout, it's reality. So we, uh, we operate today uh, with our, uh, what we call our global sustainment strategy, the GSS that I mentioned to you earlier. And I'm sorry for hitting you with an acronym there. But, um, uh, but ultimately, we, uh, we currently use um, a, a, a global spares pool and allocate uh, parts within that pool uh, to each of our uh, uh, domestic and international partners and customers. Uh, we, we work very, very closely uh, within our governance structure that, that establishes the priorities with which we, we uh, distribute those parts. Um, and, and we use that, uh, that established system to ensure that um, our, our warfighting customers get the parts they need uh, when they need them. Um, the, the, the way the system works is, is it, it uh, um, first of all, it, it defaults to sending everyone the parts that they need, right? And in the case when you have sufficient parts across the board, um, everyone gets the parts they need and everyone's happy. But invariably, uh, you find that there are times when we don't necessarily have all of the parts we need. And so you must prioritize. Right. So so uh, there is a there are mechanisms within the program office that allow us to prioritize, uh, for instance, combat operations or deployed operations or float operations above uh, home, uh, home, not homeland, uh, home site. Uh, training exercises uh, and and operations at uh, at home stations. So uh, that that aspect of the program, I would articulate, is very mature. Um, we are we are continuing to uh, to employ it as more and more uh, of our international partners uh, reach what we call initial operational capability or IOC, uh, and then take their aircraft then uh, into combat. The uh, the part of uh, the global sustainment solution that continues to grow really is the establishment and the buildup of those uh, maintenance, overhaul, repair, and upgrade facilities uh, overseas. Uh, Many of those uh, uh, facilities have already been established uh, here in the United States, uh, but all of our partners and many of our uh, foreign military sales customers are working today uh, to establish those facilities uh, within their own uh, own countries. Uh, They've been assigned uh, workloads to accomplish. Uh, and as they work to bring those online over the course of the next five to seven years, uh, they will do that in a way that supports the growing fleet, uh, both domestically and internationally. Okay, thank you. So um, just as more context, uh, sir, could you provide a better explanation of what the difference between a partner and a uh, sales customer is for foreign nations. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question, Martin, and it's and it's one that quite honestly not, not everybody understands. So I appreciate you asking. Um, so when this program was uh, was started, we we broached the idea of of a true partnership with these uh, with, with these nations uh, that that became then a part of the the decision making processes, the governance processes. Uh, that form the foundation of the program to include, you know, kind of serving as the gatekeepers for requirements coming into the program, serving as, um, as, as um, the, the the founding members of that 
uh, global sustainment solution working to to establish those uh, capabilities uh, around the world. And so, so when we we started the program uh, back in the systems development and demonstration phase, uh, we had a memorandum of understanding uh, signed out uh, at the De Deputy Secretary of Defense, the DepSecDef level, uh, that that formed kind of the underlying relationship uh, that supported the program. Um, as that phase of the program came to a close, uh, we, we signed a new memorandum uh, that covers the production, sustainment, and follow-on development pieces uh, of the program, and that's the, the paradigm under which we're currently operating. The, 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 the program governance operates in concert with that memorandum of, of understanding uh, and, and gives those partner nations um, uh, deep insight uh, into decision making on the program, again, relative to the requirements, uh, relative to the construct uh, of the sustainment solution, uh, and relative to, to how we execute uh, really almost on a, on a daily basis. Um, the, the governance structure uh, that in which we, uh, we actually meet twice a year is called the, the Joint Strike Fighter Executive Steering Board. And, uh, and, and in that uh, board, uh, we bring together uh, what I'll characterize as the service acquisition executive level of personnel from each of the countries uh, and work through the critical decisions the program has to make uh, relative to funding, relative to execution. Each of those countries also has country participating personnel or CPPs uh, within the program office. So uh, they actually sit with us side by side, day by day uh, in, in program execution, working to actually do the work of the program office um, alongside us uh, as we work our, uh, our contract negotiations, as we work our test and evaluation, as we work our sustainment uh, system. Uh, build up. So, so that that construct with embedded personnel within the program offices working uh, on the program and in the program uh, it is completely unique. Uh, conversely, uh, a foreign military sales program basically just has uh, the, the international customer now, not partner, uh, but has that customer purchasing uh, items, uh, aircraft, uh, and, uh, and uh, the, the appropriate support equipment, and has that equipment uh, you know, delivered and made ready for, uh, uh, for their use. Uh, they don't have uh, the insight, uh, the deep insight into program decisions. They don't have the vote, uh, if you will, into uh, program direction uh, relative to requirements and capabilities. Uh, and the, uh, the level of involvement is much, uh, uh, much, much lower uh, than you have with the international partners. So, so uh, Martin, a great question uh, regarding the difference between a partner um, and, a, and a customer. Um, thank you for asking. Yes, thank you for that great answer. So meeting with all these other leaders of other programs, what are some of the particular or perhaps unique challenges of leading the program when there's so much cooperation and consensus required with partners? You know, as you said, maybe not with customers, but partners have more of a vote and they have more of a say. So what is uh, leading that? What are the challenges you face? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so, so it is a complex environment. Uh, when I uh, uh, when I think about the interactions we have on a daily basis with with each of the customers, as you might imagine, um, uh, each of our uh, each of our international partners uh, have parliaments. Uh, each of our international uh, or or ministries of defense, I guess, um, 
uh, each of our uh, international partners have have chiefs of their air forces and navies uh, who, uh, who who have uh, requirements. So each of them comes to the table uh, with a with a, a I'm going to say a different set of demands, um, and we work within that governance structure that I described previously to 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 mush all of them together uh, in into a into a program that that I would argue is is more than the sum of its parts. Um, it's actually a um, it's a complex uh, arrangement, um, and, and it's one that requires a lot of uh, a lot of attention uh, on a daily and weekly basis. Uh, but it is one I believe that uh, has produced uh, an air system um, and a sustainment strategy uh, that is truly uh, truly a uh, a good thing, uh, not just for the U.S. Uh, but uh, but for the world. One of the uh, one of the complexities, uh, though, that, that I have found um, is that uh, the, the the U.S. services, uh, arguably my biggest customers, uh, given the, the share of the aircraft that uh, they're producing or that they're purchasing, um, are, aren't accustomed to working in this way. Right. So getting uh, getting the Air Force, the Navy, the Marine Corps, uh, the Department of Defense uh, uh, accustomed to a broader uh, interaction and engagement, and a, frankly, a very unique uh, interaction and engagement, um, is a uh, uh, is a persistent challenge. I, I think they understand uh, the goodness. I think they understand uh, why uh, that partnership uh, and their involvement is so important. Uh, but it is a little bit of an unnatural act uh, for folks who uh, who grew up uh, perhaps their entire uh, acquisition uh, career uh, doing uh, strictly uh, U.S. government programs. Right, right. That must be, especially as you were talking earlier, the newness of this sort of cooperation must be a challenge to, to communicate across. But I'm good, glad to hear that they seem to have an understanding of the benefits out of that. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, regrettably, this podcast is being recorded uh, virtually instead of in person. Um, that's due to COVID-19. Can I ask you what impact uh, the coronavirus has had on the F-35 program and how that's changed the way you've had to do things these past months? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so so it has had an impact on us. Um, when I look at, uh, at where we were on on March uh, 16th, which I think was our last our last day of non-COVID induced uh, dislocation, um, we, we were in a we were in a different place uh, than we were today. Um, I think even intellectually, I was in a different place uh, than than I am today, uh, relative to what you can accomplish uh, when you're not actually in the office. Um, I, I think that uh, we benefited uh, uh, substantially from a, a pretty robust uh, IT infrastructure that has has actually uh, even gotten better over the course of the last uh, last few days and weeks as we have put some much needed uh, uh, up, upgrades uh, in place. Uh, but but the first lesson, I, I guess I would say, is, you know, we went uh, relatively quickly to an almost completely teleworked environment, which means that uh, you know, about 92 to 95 percent of my uh, of my workforce um, are, are operating from their living rooms in slippers as opposed to uh, uh, office chairs. Um, and, and we've been able to get uh, a whole lot of work done uh, in that uh, in that uh, in that new construct. Uh, which has us thinking about uh, what, what we can do to be uh, better stewards of the taxpayers' money, right? What, how many uh, how many different uh, office uh, spaces can I give up 
to take advantage of the fact that uh, I don't necessarily uh, or I'm not necessarily going to have uh, everyone in the office uh, full time. So so we're actively looking at that. We're actively trying to uh, to, to put tools in place that allow us to uh, run this program, not from the, the 37 to 40 uh, operating locations we had here in the U.S. Uh, from a program perspective, but from the closer to 2000 uh, operating locations we have with with all of our people uh, operating from home. And that's really just program office uh, operations. Uh, when I look at uh, the broader effect of COVID on the program, uh, what I find is that uh, we have had some, uh, some slowdowns uh, in production uh, relative to COVID. Uh, uh, we're going to be roughly uh, in the low 20s of aircraft behind from a delivery perspective um, this calendar year. Uh, we're going to fall uh, maybe another um, dozen or so behind in uh, in 2021, uh, and then we uh, should be uh, fully recovered uh, by the end of uh, 2023, uh, neutral in 22, and then recovered by 23. So, so uh, unfortunately, this this burble that we felt in the supply chain, um, thanks to uh, thanks to the, the 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 really the COVID lockdowns in the spring of 2020, uh, are manifesting themselves um, in a um, in, a, in an extended way uh, relative to our ability to catch up. Uh, we're being very, uh, very open and transparent with all of our stakeholders, with all of our customers relative to uh, when we uh, when we expect uh, to deliver out to all of those aircraft, when we expect uh, to recover. Uh, but there has been an impact uh, on the program. Um, uh, some of it, uh, I'll say it this way, some of it positive and, and some of it negative. Right. It seems to be that there's mixed results in everything, but I'm glad to hear that there's um, some more future thought being put towards what, how things can be improved from this. I have uh, one more question for you. Uh, doing my research, I've received from intel some intelligence that there is a, a healthy display of Notre Dame memorabilia in your office. <laughs> Um, when you host uh, domestic and international defense leaders, what do you share with them about your your Notre Dame, your Irish heritage, and how do you feel that that has shaped you in the way you lead or work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, so most, uh, for what it's worth, most uh, uh, international uh, visitors um, uh Tend tend to uh, tend to not spend much time in my office. We go right to the conference room. So uh, unfortunately, uh, they they don't uh, they don't see a lot of uh, a lot of my memorabilia, which which is a shame because I do have a glorious display. Uh, you include a, a helmet and a football and, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but what I will tell you is that is that what I learned at Notre Dame, uh, how I learned at Notre Dame, um, and how I learned to learn uh, at Notre Dame. Um, I, I think are, are, are foundational in, uh, in my success uh, in the Air Force. I, I think uh, to, to, be a, to be a moral leader, um, you, you need a, a very solid um, underpinning. And I think you know, when I look at the coursework that I did there at, uh, at the University of Notre Dame, not just my engineering classes, but when I go uh, into my, uh, my philosophy, my theology, my, my other uh, supporting classes. Actually, I took uh, uh, international relations was my only uh, uh, my only uh, elective in my freshman year. Uh, when I look at at the at the breadth of that education and, and the underpinning that it gave 
my professional career, um, I couldn't be more thankful uh, to, uh, to the university for, uh, for all it did for me. So I, I would characterize that uh, w whether they, uh, w whether the partners and whether my, uh, my leadership sees uh, Notre Dame on a daily basis or not, I, I think, uh, at least I hope, uh, that, that they sense it uh, in the way I think and in the way I do. Well, thank you for your valuable time today, sir. Um, speaking on the behalf of NDISC, we appreciate your tremendous insights into such a co significant cooperative effort in international security. And thank you to our listeners for listening to yet another enlightening episode of the Students Talk Security podcast. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, you can go to Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And go Irish. Go Irish. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers not of the international security center or the university of notre dame which take no institutional position music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap <laughs>